All right, so Chris is out of town. Hannah's graduating, and uh, so um, that's where he is. I think, I think this morning is, is when she's actually doing it. Um, so I'm here, and I'm preaching on, uh, on Mark. Uh, Mark 1 is where we're going to be, so you can go ahead and flip there in your Bibles. <clears throat> so there's this painting by a Polish artist. Uh, his name is um, Henrik. Simorotsky. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. I've never seen this painting in real life. It's in Poland, uh, so if anybody has been to Poland and has seen it, come and tell me about it. I, I'm sure we've all heard about this, this painting. Let me describe it to you. So it's, it's one of those horizontal paintings, all right? Um, it's a scene that's outside. It, it seems to be kind of a sunny day. There's these urns, these like incense urns, you think, and, and you kind of see some smoke coming up, and the smoke's just kind of barely moving, so maybe a little bit of a breeze. And... Uh, and in the three left uh, quadrants uh, of the painting, you see this, this huge marble palace. All right, it's a Roman palace. It's full of splendor. There's this, this golden house, uh, white marble. There's these sculptures all over the place of like chariots and, and horses and centaurs. Uh, there's a staircase that starts on the top, kind of the top left, and it goes down, and on the staircase are all of these, these people. You have Roman senators with their, their little garland hats and their, their red sashes, and you have um, people playing instruments, and, and the staircase goes, there's a lot of people, dozens and dozens of people, and it ends kind of in the middle where there's this, this marble platform. And then down in the bottom left, there's this fountain, uh, one of those fountains where there's a mouth, like a sculpted face, and the water's coming out of it. And, uh, and down there next to the fountain, there's all of these people, they're drinking, and they're talking, and they're laughing, and um, there's only one guy that really seems set apart from everyone else. He's maybe scared or sad. He's, he's, he's not looking down, his head's bowed, but he's looking up where most everybody is looking. Um, but he's the only guy that doesn't seem to be having fun. Um, and, and down there in the, the bottom left next to the fountain, there's these stairs, and they also go up to this marble staircase, to this marble platform. And on that platform is this, this bed. Uh, it's covered with golden blankets. And uh, I guess it's not a bed. It's more of a, like a sedan. You know, it's held by those poles, those horizontal poles. And it has these servants that are holding this bed. The servants are dressed in gold. They have their ears pierced. It's it's covered with a, a golden canopy, and it's got this angel-like figure with big wings. It's golden. There's a lot of gold and white marble, and there's a tiger. And the tiger has this golden leash, and the person that's sitting on the bed is holding this golden leash, and he's got a crown on his head. He's the emperor, all right? And then on the, 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 the left quadrant of the painting, um, you see that everybody is looking out there, and there's this garden, and you see in the garden, there's like maybe a dozen of these poles, and these poles are um, wrapped in, in flowers um, all the way up to the top. And there are these pots, and in the pots, there's, this, uh, there's these torches that people are lighting on fire. And everybody's watching, and, and they're lighting them on fire, and they're handing them up to these guys that are on ladders, and these ladders are leaning against the poles. And you see that everybody is looking at what's on the top of these poles, and it's, it's men and women, young and old, and they're wrapped in hay and straw, and they're about to be set on fire. They're called the candlesticks of Christianity. And this painting is called Nero's Torches. So I'm going to be preaching on Mark 1, 14 through 20. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to 
compare and contrast the kings of men with the king of kings and the kingdoms of men with the kingdoms of God. And I'm going to talk about the call of this kingdom of God and the call of the king of kings. And so this message is titled, The Kingdom and the Called. And again, we're going through a series in Mark talking about the king and the cross. All right. So when Mark was writing this gospel, Nero, he was the emperor. And some scholars think that uh, Mark might have actually been in Rome with Peter uh, when he was writing this gospel. And Peter, we, we might know, was, was martyred by, by the Roman rulers. And so the gospel, according to Mark, was written at the start of one of the most brutal and tragic persecutions of the church. And we'll see as we read through Mark what the people wanted, you know, back in, in Jesus' time and what they thought they needed uh, during the time that uh, Roman, and the, Rome, the time of Roman rule that followed even after Jesus' death, Jesus' death. What people wanted and what they thought they needed was a political ruler that would come and help conquer the Romans, a military warrior. Um, but they didn't, they didn't ever get what they wanted, but they did get what they needed. See, they were delivered from a, a, an enemy that was crueler than Nero, um, and from uh, an enemy that's more dangerous than the Roman armies and more painful even than those burning torches. They were delivered from death, uh, from sin and from the nefarious force that's behind death and sin, the serpent, Satan. And they were delivered from the, court, the curse. And so our text this morning starts saying that, this is in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So let's talk about the kingdom. And let's try to answer two questions. One, what does Jesus mean when he says that the time is fulfilled? Is it the overthrowing of the Roman occupation? Like people thought it would be. And what is the kingdom of God? Is it some new form of, of religious nationalism like the, the Israelites had back in the day before the Romans? Okay, well, listen to this and tell me if this sounds familiar. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news. So this language is from the imperial ruler, uh, ruler cult in honor of Caesar Augustus. Um, this was a gospel. That's what a gospel is, is a proclamation of good news. And so this was another gospel that was floating around during that time. Um, an announcement that Caesar was the beginning of the world of good news for, for everyone. And now what does this sound like to you? Listen to how Mark starts, if your eyes just go up to the top of your page. Mark 1.1 actually starts, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what you see here, what we see here in Mark immediately is really, it's a challenge. He's echoing the imperial myth that's claiming that Caesar, that Caesar was the beginning of the good news. And he's challenging this imperial gospel. So Mark starts with this challenge, but then we'll, we'll also find he ends with it too. At the very end of Mark, it's a Roman centurion who after Jesus died and the sky went black, it was a Roman that said, this is surely the son of God. Mark's challenging the claim that this human institution or human institutions in general can bring ultimate peace and prosperity. So 
I mean, governments are good. We know that governments are good and that they do good things. And Roman rule is still considered one of the, the greatest feats of civilization. You see um, aqueducts and, and roads and um, sculptures all through Europe. We even see it in Morocco when we go and visit Morocco. And we know that Roman rule is in the history books as a, as a good and great thing. Up there with the Persian Empire and the Han Dynasty. You have the Mongolian Empire and the Ottomans. Then you have the Spanish Empire and the Russian Empire and the British Empire. I think that most people would probably say in the last hundred years we're, we're living in what historians might end up calling the United States Empire. That's where we're living right now. And we've also got these religious empires. You've got the Roman Catholic Empire that had a lot of power throughout its day. Right now we hear about and we know about in Islam the idea of uh, Islamic theocracy. They call it the caliphate. They think that that's going to bring in peace and prosperity. In Russia, right now, you have the Russian regime, but you also have the Russian Orthodox Church that's supporting that regime. And here at home, we do see forms of Christian nationalism that we're reading about in the newspaper. And now all of these empires, both religious and secular, are all trying to make the same claim. That the time has finally come, these empires say, that the greatest empire or government or kingdom is here and the world can now have peace and prosperity under its rule. And Mark is challenging this. That's what he's doing here. The whole Bible is challenging this. He's, it's challenging the storyline of, um, of a human institution as our savior. Back in Isaiah chapter nine, it, it says this. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, like we already read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in John 1.1, 1, 1, we know this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we go back to Genesis, and we see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is where our beginnings begin, not with Caesar, not with Caesar Augustus, but with the Creator God, the God that breathed life into our nostrils. And it started in a garden, and we had perfect peace with him, but then we attempted a coup. And uh, this was far away from the, the, the Roman cathedrals that we see in Jesus' day. Um, and in that coup, what happened was a serpent came and, he, and he, uh, he told us that if we ate this fruit, that we'll be like God, that there's a better kingdom to be had, a kingdom that you'll rule or we'll rule instead of him. And so we ate the fruit and the curse was unleashed and we were exiled and we were removed from the goodness of the true king and we were doomed instead to face his wrath. And as we left the garden, as Adam and Eve, le Adam and Eve left the garden, they heard the serpent, they heard God tell the serpent that there would come a child at some point, that he would make things right again. This is a hint of the gospel. And years later, we know that this child would come and stand before the same serpent up on top of a great mountain and that serpent would say the same thing that he said to Adam and Eve. 
The kingdoms of the world can be yours if only you bow down. But that time was still a long time coming. First, there was the flood, and that wiped away all the grievous kingdoms that happened from the time of Adam and Eve leaving the garden. All right? And then after that, we had a tower. We again tried to build our own kingdom up to the kingdom of God, but that tower fell. And then a, a glimmer of hope would appear. Eventually, a promise would be made to Abraham saying, I'll make you into a great nation, another hint of the gospel. And then years later, Abraham's children um, would be led by Moses through a, through a sea on dry land. And, and behind them, the army that chased, uh, the water would crash down on that army. And this would be a, a hint of God's sovereign rule, but also God's saving rule. And then these Israelites, they would come to a mountain and they would dance around a golden calf. A, a, a golden calf. And the, the depth of their treachery would actually be written down in the law and they would see how far their hearts really were from what they needed to be in order to approach the holy God. But they would go into a land um, led by the king, the true king, and they would conquer this land. And once they were in this land, they would say, give us a king like the nations. And God would tell them, kings will take your sons and they're going to send them to war and they'll take your daughters. They'll take your livelihood and they'll, you'll cry out to me for help, but I'm not going to help you. But the people said, still, we want a king like the nations. So God gave them a king like the nations. And so you had Saul and you had David and you had Solomon and it kind of goes from bad to worse to very bad. But before David died, a prophet did come and tell him this. In 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And generations later, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. At last, the king. But most everyone still wanted and still expected the same thing. They said, give us a king like the nations. But from that high mountain, when the serpent, during the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness that we read about last week, on that high mountain, when the serpent would reach out over all of the kingdoms of the world and say, all of this is yours, Jesus, if you only fall down and worship me. But Jesus of Nazareth would say no. That same seed of the original coup, there's a better kingdom to be had that you can rule instead of him, Satan says to Jesus. Jesus from the, the child of Eve, Jesus from the line of David. And he would say to the serpent, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, Jesus says. So at last, the king had arrived. All right, so now let's start talking about this kingdom. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what does Jesus mean when he says that the time is fulfilled? Is it the overthrowing of Roman occupation? I mean, we know that it's not. But, uh, but let me share a verse to, to help us frame this question. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood for forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. And here, right at the end, we get to the answer to our question. He says, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We see that the time that was fulfilled is this, when things in heaven and on earth will be united through the redemption by Jesus' blood. His sacrificial death on the cross pays for our attempted coup. And it pays for our daily attempts to rule our own lives, to be sovereign, for me to do what I want to do rather than to submit to the, to the true king. So we see that God's kingdom is not just his sovereign rule, but it's also his saving rule, saving us from our treacherous attempted coup. This is the time that was fulfilled. And, and what about the kingdom? So, Going back to the garden that we started with, the garden was a prototype of the kingdom where heavenly things and earthly things uh, united. In the garden, you had Adam and Eve, but they both related to God. Uh, they both related to God, heavenly things, but they also related to each other in the world around them, physical things. There was a realm, you had the garden, and there was a reign, God, and you had God's people there, Adam and Eve. There was a king and a kingdom. But as we, as we just talked about, they rebelled. They wanted the realm without the reign, Adam and Eve did. They wanted the king without the kingdom, and so they lost both. So let's talk about the reign. So God still reigns. Um, he didn't lose his authority when Adam and Eve ate, uh, ate the fruit. Um, and he hasn't lost his authority now. But it did fracture the relationship between God's people and God. It fractured the relationship of that reign between God's people, us, and him. It caused us to pull away from God, and it's a constant pull of our hearts now, to pull away from God, to pull more so inward instead of upward and outward. We think a lot about ourselves now. So listen to how, how Tim Keller puts this. In the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, we see that we were created to live in a world in which all relationships were whole, psychologically and socially perfect, because God was king. But in Genesis chapter 3 tells us the next part of our story, that we have each chosen to be our own king. We have gone the way of self-centeredness, and self-centeredness destroys relationships. There's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? Self-absorption leaves us static. There's nothing more disintegrating. Why do we have wars, class struggles, family breakdown, 
Why are our relationships constantly exploding? It's the darkness of self-centeredness. So God's reign is still true. The sun still shines at his command and the, the world still turns at his command. His reign is all around us, but his reign is not inside us always. There's this constant battle in our inner being for the throne. Who will sit in the seat of power in our hearts? Who will reign in my heart? Will God reign or will I reign? And I tell you, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Chris talked about this last week when he talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John talked about when he came and baptized, when, when Jesus came and uh, Jesus was baptized. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to relinquish that desire to reign in our own hearts. We all want to be king. So Tom Petty, uh, you guys might know that guy, he, he, he puts it like this. It's good to be king and have our own way. Get a feeling of peace at the end of the day. And when, you're, and when your bulldog barks and, you're, and when your canary sings, you're out there with winners. It's good to be king. You know, if you guys know that song, he's actually talking about who is, who is he fooling? How could he be king? That's what the song is actually about. But it, it, it points on exactly what every one of us deal with every day. We want to be king of our own little worlds. Uh, so we've talked about the reign, the reign of the king, but let's talk about the realm of the king. So clearly, we still live in, you know, a physical world. We're not floating around. There's a physical world around us. Um, but this physical world is broken, just like our hearts are broken. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell, God says, so God, God said it's, it was the curse. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And then in Romans, we have uh, this. In Romans 8, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the world that we experience it today, you know, while it's good and while there, there's so many beautiful things like the rain and springtime coming, uh, you know, Ken's and I were just talking about how everything turned green like over the course of a week. It's, this world is beautiful and, and, and we enjoy it. Um, but, but, guys, let me tell you something. It's not like it was. And it's not like it's gonna be. So, here again, Christianity is different from other religions. And this is how Tim Keller puts it. Some religions say that this material world is gonna end. That righteous or enlightened people will be rescued out of it and enter into a kind of ethereal, spiritual paradise. And other religions say that this material world is just an illusion. Or perhaps you believe that the earth will eventually burn up with the death of the sun and everything here will disintegrate as if it had never been. But the good news of the kingdom of God is that this material world that God created is going to be renewed and it's going to last forever. There was a realm in the garden and there was a reign in the garden and now we see in Jesus Christ that the realm and the reign are breaking back in. But again, not in the way that people expected. So let's talk a little bit about the kings and the kingdoms of men. All right, 
So why didn't Jesus rise up and overthrow the Romans? He actually answers this explicitly in John 18. This was after Jesus was arrested and the Jews handed him over to the chief priests and the chief priests handed him over to Pilate and then Pilate comes in. Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answers, answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. And what have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king for this very purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So listen, this is what I'm trying to say. And this is what I believe Jesus is saying. An earthly king cannot restore this cursed kingdom back to what it was. And an earthly king can't make it into what it's gonna be. The political elite, the political elite will not ever bring us peace. This is what the Jews wanted back in Israel. And this is what we're dealing with now, right here in the United States and all around the world. But the thing is, is that our problems can't be fixed by just getting the right people in the right seats of power. You see, the same curse that's in my heart, the same curse that's in your hearts is in everybody's heart. And putting a broken king in charge of a broken kingdom is gonna fix nothing. The kingdom of God is not formed by political power. And, and let me say something else that we're going to see through Mark. The kingdom of God isn't predicated on religious austerity. And, and this is what the Pharisees thought. The prevailing view at that time was that sure, the kingdom of God was dependent, yes, on God himself. But what would really set it into motion or what would make him act is righteous living. And so the Pharisees took righteous living very seriously. We just had to be better people. We had to keep the law better. And then, and only then, God would come. We would summon up the Messiah by being good, law-keeping people, like matching funds. We do our part, and then God will do his part. But as we walk through the book of Mark, we're going to see that that's not the case. That's not at all how Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, when he talks about the king and the kingdom of God, he uses analogies and he uses parables. He says it's like a gardener going out and scattering seed. He goes out and he scatters the seed and then he goes to bed and then he wakes up and then he goes to bed and he wakes up and eventually there's a garden. Jesus says the earth produces himself. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus says it's like a mustard seed that starts small and then it grows into something very big. Jesus says outright to his disciples, these things that I'm telling you, many won't understand. The kingdom of God is mysterious. All right, but we don't believe the kingdom of God into existence. We don't explain it into existence. And we certainly don't summon it up by righteous living. 
And we certainly don't make it by putting a broken king in charge of a broken kingdom. The kingdom of God is not going to be solved with religious nationalism. The kingdom of God, it's not socialism. It's not communism. And it's not capitalism. It's not democracy. It's not Republican and it's not Democrat. It's not Rome and it's not Russia and it's not China. And the kingdom of God is not the United States. The kingdoms, the kingdoms of men are defined and established by maps. But the kingdom of God isn't. The kingdom of God is underneath all of that. It's above all of that and it's inside all of that. The kingdom of God is seen in Jesus crying at Lazarus' tomb, crying at the death of his friend and then calling him to come out and him coming out of the tomb. The kingdom of God is seen in taking the bloody, scabby hand of a leper and taking his face in his hand while all, everybody else stood, stood six feet back because that, that disgusting leper is going to give us all leprosy and Jesus would take their hands and he would heal them. The kingdom of God is telling a man that can't walk, that breaks in through the ceiling, your sins are forgiven. And then looking at all of the scoffers who are saying, who can this guy, who does this guy think he is, forgive sins? The kingdom of God is seen in Jesus looking at those people and saying, is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier for me to make this guy walk? And then he makes the guy walk. The kingdom of God is having dinner and sitting down around tables and laughing with and crying with people that are all around us but that nobody sees. The kingdom of God is seen with the Son of God washing his friend's feet. And the kingdom of God is seen when Jesus, the Messiah, carries his own cross up to a mountain and he lays down on the ground while a man that he made holds a hammer and a nail and nails his wrist. A, a man that, that Jesus Christ saw knit together in his, mother's in his mother's womb, letting him nail him to a cross. And the kingdom of God is seen three days later when Jesus rolls the, 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 the stone away from his own tomb. The kingdom of God breaks into the curse. And it's not fought and won on the battlefields. It's fought and won in my heart and in your hearts. That's where the kingdom of God resides. All right? It's fought and won when the Holy Spirit comes on, comes into our, our hearts, and he helps us off of the little thrones of the little kingdoms in our little worlds, and he points back to the garden, and he points to the future kingdom, and he points to the, the crucified and risen king, and he says, there is more. There is good news. We no longer have to posture and we don't have to prove. I don't have to prove that I'm right and you don't have to prove that you're right. We don't have to justify. We don't have to defend. We don't have to vie and contend and compete. The kingdom of God is found in the fact that the king has come and he has paid our debt and he's invited us back into that kingdom. And so everything has changed. So repent and believe in the gospel. I've spent the last little while uh, talking about the gospel, but here it is again. This is what it is. Okay, God created us and he's king, but we're constantly trying to dethrone him, and that's treason. The price for treason is death, and that price must be paid. 
And that was the whole reason that Jesus came, was to pay that price, to pay that debt. And that is the gospel. That is the news. He died on the cross and he rose again. The debt is paid. That's the historical event on which my eternity and your eternity pivots. Here's how Paul put it. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you when you received it, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, For I deliver, you, deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here we are at a crossroad. And these two roads, they're not parallel roads, guys. They go to completely different places. And so the question is, do you believe Because if you believe, doesn't that change everything? And that change, that's what repentance is. It's a reordering, a turning away from our old drive to sit on the thrones of our own heart and relinqu relinquishing it willingly and joyfully to the only one who can rule it well. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 5, and that I prayed, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling to the world himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you believe? Because if you believe, then you're called. And being called means something. So let's go to point four, the called. So moving on to verse 16 through 20, Mark writes, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here's a thing to note. Jesus calls people to follow him. In Jewish tradition, it was actually the opposite. The pupils chose the rabbis. The rabbis didn't choose the pupils, but that's how Jesus did it. And here's why it matters. The driving force in the calling of Peter, he's called Simon here in, uh, in, in Mark, um, but the driving force um, in the calling of Peter and his brother Andrew, and then later with uh, James and John, is not that these four guys saw something great in Jesus. Though they, they did. The other Gospels tell us that, that Peter had just seen Jesus command a boat full of fish to swim into his net. All right? So, you know, they did see something in Jesus. But that wasn't the driving force. The driving force was that Jesus 
saw something great in these four guys. He saw what they could be. He saw what he was going to make them into. They didn't go looking for Jesus. In fact, Jesus went looking for them. And he meets them there in his world, next to their boats, smelling their fish with the same dust on his hands. He wasn't waiting in some holy ground in the temple and the synagogue for, for pupils to come to him. He went looking for his pupils. And, and more than that, Jesus didn't require, he didn't have any prerequisites. Um, he wasn't asking Peter and, and Andrew and James and John to, to take a look at whatever thesis maybe they had written on the scrolls and passed around um, to all of the, you know, the, the academics and the scribes at, at that time and, and kind of analyze what their thinking was on certain theological concepts. No, Jesus had no prerequisites. He, caught, he found them when they were fishing. And this is also unlike any other rabbi-pupil relationships. While the pupil or the student would, back in Jewish tradition, choose the, the rabbi or the teacher, um, the teacher would still want to, to, to see the prerequisites of the, the students before they, they, they um, okayed that relationship. And Jesus didn't do that. And so this is why I chose Isaiah 43 for our scripture reading. Let's read it one more time. The first verse. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. See, Jesus wasn't looking for just anyone. Some four guys, any four guys, it didn't matter. No, Jesus was looking for Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he called them by name. All right, so the next point is that Jesus calls doers, not dialogue partners. So he says, follow me and I will make you. I will make you. So Jesus wasn't calling learners. He was calling doers. There were plenty of folk, as I've already mentioned, who, who knew the scriptures better, who knew theology better and the law better. But Jesus wasn't just like looking for interesting people that he could debate theology with, um, people that, to talk about things with. Though these things can be good and they're fun and it's important and good for us to talk theology, all right, over coffee or whatever. But Jesus was looking for followers, for doers, for folks that were willing to lay down their nets lay down their, their careers, lay down their comforts, and follow him. What he's calling them to do is a complete uh, reordering of their life. Jesus isn't calling people just to agree with them, but an, a life-altering change. And what we see James and John do here, I think is pretty significant. They, uh, so, so they and their father clearly had a, a small business, a family business, all right? It was probably a pretty successful one because they had people working for them. And they, they walked away from this business. And they're, they're also walking away from their dad here. So I, I don't think that we need to assume that their dad, Zebedee, was necessarily against it or for it. Um, it, do, it. It doesn't say. Maybe he was encouraging it. But either way, I think that what they were doing, most everyone in here would say, that's pretty extreme. I mean, don't you think? I think a lot of people would say that it's ill-conceived and dangerous to walk away from your job and your career and your house, you know, no matter what the reason. Some would say that it's fanatical. 
And here's where a lot of us, I think, I know, get hung up. Right? There's, this does seem, this calling does seem to be a little bit fanatical. And, you know, I suppose it is, or at least it would be fanatical if, if everything that I've been talking about this morning isn't true. Then it's, yeah, it's fanatical. But, but I think it is true. And I think that the Bible is true, and I think that the gospel is true. And so, if the gospel is true, and if it's real, then I find the alternative posture, that's actually a little crazy. That's a little more ill-conceived and dangerous. If Jesus, the king, and the kingdom is here, and the king is calling us, I mean, how do you drink that up in moderation? All things in moderation is what they say. Moderation, not life. Not everlasting, soul-satisfying life. You don't drink that up in moderation. You gulp it. You guzzle it. The gospel is not believed in moderation. You go all the way in. It's either true or it's not. And if it isn't true, then yes, this thing is a thing of the fanatics. But if it is true, then, then we need to go all the way in. What I'm, what I'm not saying, though, is that anyone who hasn't, like, walked off of the job um, and moved across country uh, is believing in the gospel in moderation. That's not what I'm trying to say. Christianity uh, isn't a call to not hold the job. It's not a call to not have a house and to not have a family and to not plan for retirement. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that following Jesus isn't just a mental in, uh, exercise. It's, it's not just a social alignment, a religious affiliation, like this. It's not just the uh, evangelical checkmark next to the nun checkmark in the, the, the religious category that we get asked when we do those positioning polls. That's not what following Jesus is. Following Jesus is a complete reordering of what we find important, a completely different social practice. Um, and if our society calls that fanatical, then, then I guess that we'll have to take it. So the next point is that we're called into a fellowship. So I like Lord of the Rings. But I'll be honest, um, I didn't grow up reading it. And what I'm about to say is going to insult some of you. So just, just, all right. I didn't grow up reading it, and even when the movies came out, um, I didn't go and watch the movies. It wasn't until, you know, just maybe 10 years ago or so, when I, right before I moved up here, I was at Chris's house, Chris McGarvey's house. Um, he let me stay here while I was doing some interviews for some jobs, and I saw that he had, uh, he had uh, Lord of the Rings on his shelves. Now, at this time, and again, no, not, to, not to be insulting, but Lord of the Rings to me was kind of like Star Trek or Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, it was kind of in that, that category, like that, that card game Magic the Gathering. I was like, okay, it's kind of nerdy. And uh, I told Chris this, and uh, he set me straight. Um, you know, he didn't think that was funny at all. Um, all right, so I read the books. And I read Fellowship of the Rings. And, and for those of you that haven't read it, um, I'm not going to go into the story. But here's the point. Is, and the, the Lord of the Rings starts with this fellowship. And you have a, a, a handful of random people. You've got this hobbit. You've got an elf. You've got a dwarf. And you've got a wizard. And then you've got a couple of kings. And these people had no business doing anything together. All right? But they had this fellowship. 
this call to go and destroy this magic ring by throwing it uh, into the depths of evil. All right, what we're called to is something like that, a fellowship. These four guys here, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Okay, now I, I, I'm going to say this carefully. Hopefully you guys, you guys take it the way that I intend this. All right. They were, they, Peter, Andrew, James, and John weren't called into a phrase that we often use when we talk about people believing in Jesus or converting to Christianity. Peter, Andrew, James, and John weren't called to a personal relationship with Jesus. That's not what this calling is. Right? Don't get me wrong. They had a personal relationship with Jesus. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. Okay, we personally believe in Jesus. We personally relate to Jesus. But if we truly have a personal relationship with Jesus, we will inevitably be drawn into the community of Jesus. Jesus' calling in our lives is not to be a lone ranger, just me and Jesus out against the world. The kingdom of God has other people in it. Jesus is initiating a life-encompassing community, a community of individuals who have a personal relationship with Jesus, but a community of individuals who know each other and who love each other and who care for each other and fight for each other and protect each other and that fight with each other and uh, forgive each other. All right? They argue and they disagree and they exhort, but the fellowship reaches beyond all of that. It's not rooted in my personal preference for the kinds of people that I want to spend time with or your personal preference. The community of God, the kingdom of God is rooted in God's sovereign vision of a fellowship that, in which he only sees the fruition. God sees each of us not just for who we are now but for who we're gonna be, who he's making us into. And that's what the church is. That's what the church should be. And I think that if any of you guys weren't here a couple of weeks ago, Russell preached on Acts, Acts 2. I'd really encourage you to go and give that a listen. Um, he, talked, he talked about his thesis basically was that the Bible needs to define what church life should look like, not our, not our society. And our society is an individualistic society where individual, individual choice and self-autonomy is worshipped above all things. But the calling of Jesus isn't a call into individual autonomy. It's a call into a fellowship. So what are we called to do? I touched on the fact that being part of a, a fellowship entails a common purpose and action. So, so what is that action? So we see here in our, our passage, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Fishers of men. That's the analogy. And I know that that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. I had a conversation with someone that I work with talking about Kinza. So Kinza became a believer in, in Spain. Um, and uh, it was a group of missionaries who preached the gospel to her. And they were in Spain because in Morocco you weren't allowed to be a missionary there in Morocco. So these people would go to Spain, but the people group that they were trying to reach were, you know, Moroccan Moroccans. So these Moroccans, they would be going to college in Spain. A lot of them go to college there. And, um, and that's what they do. And so I shared this with, with this lady that I worked with. And I'll tell you, she was shocked. And, and she was even angry about, about it. 
And she told me in no uncertain terms that this sort of practice is wrong, all right? That asking college students to believe in something as they're removed from their culture, she said, that's manipulative. Okay, all right, all right. My brother-in-law, he phrases it this way. He sees it a little bit different. So he's not a Christian yet. Um, but he's always talking about Christianity with me. And he gives Kinza a hard time saying that she was a target. He was a target too, but sh she was the, the main target, you know. And they got her in jest, he says. The, the missionaries got her. He says it lightheartedly, and um, he knew these missionaries, and he's, he's friends with them. I think under it all, uh, under the, the joke, he, he appreciated that, that, uh, um, that they wanted to invest in his life and in Kenza's life. But I get it, you know, I get it. The phrase, we've got this phrase, he, he got me hook, line, and sinker. You know, that's a fishing analogy, just like this. Fishing for men has negative connotations. And so I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't and, as I'm talking about it right now. But let me do this. Let me pair it up with another line from an Old Testament prophet. This is in Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. But instead, they'll say, as the Lord lives who brought, uh, brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, out of the countries where he had driven them. Again, this is during the exile. So this is a prophecy during the exiles when everyone had been taken off into captivity. He says, for I will bring them back to their own land and that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. So this prophecy is about God saving the people who had committed treason against him. He's going to send fishermen and he's going to send hunters and they're going to go and find them and bring them back out from hiding into the safety, into the fold of the good king and the good, king, good kingdom. This prophecy is about rescuing people from a path of ruin. It's about rescuing people from the depths of a, like a raging sea, like throwing them a buoy, a life jacket. Okay, I have a pool. All right, it's new to me. I bought this house last summer, and so we have a pool, and, and we love it. But last summer, Elias, my five-year-old, he was outside by the pool with my mom. And uh, she was reading or something, you know, doing something, and out of the corner of her eyes, she saw this little movement, and so she kind of looks up, and she goes walking over next to the pool. She doesn't see anything, and then she looks down in the pool, and she sees Elias there at the bottom of the deep end, floating, looking up. He couldn't swim, and she fished him out. Thank God she fished him out. Now, if someone doesn't really believe in the gospel and doesn't really believe that there's a kingdom and a king, and for those of us that maybe take the gospel in moderation, then yes, I completely get why fishing for men sounds kind of overbearing or arrogant or even disdainful. But for those of us that do believe the gospel, and see the state of affairs for those around us as my mom saw Elias's state of affairs as he was drowning on the bottom of the, the deep end. All right, this phrase means something completely different. It's not disdainful and it's not arrogant. It's not nefarious. What would be nefarious 
is not acting on the information that we have. Looking at a desperate swimmer overwhelmed by the sea in a raging storm and not reaching out our hand to rescue them, that's cruel and that's evil. And so if you believe the gospel, you gotta, you gotta put that next to what fishers of men means. So, all right. I'm getting to the close just to let you know. I'll get there. There's this guy. All right, I heard this story. It's from a TV show I used to watch. There's this guy and he's walking down the street and he falls into a hole and the hole is too steep for him to get out. So he's looking up and he sees a doctor come by and he says, hey doctor, can you help me out? I'm stuck in this hole. And the doctor writes a script and tosses it down in the hole and then moves on. All right. He sees a priest come and walking by and he says, hey father, I'm stuck. I'm in a bind. Can you help me out of this hole? And the priest looks down and he writes a script and he tosses it down in the, in the hole and then he moves on. And then our guy sees his friend walk by and he says, hey, Joe, I'm stuck down, in he down here in this hole. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps down in the hole. And our guy says to him, what are you, stupid? Now we're both stuck in this hole. And the friend looks at, looks at him and he says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Brothers and sisters, if you've heard the gospel call, if you believe in it, then this is our calling. If we're not right now, down in a hole with someone, we need to get in one. And for those of you who have not believed and now want to or are considering it or are interested, or for those of you who have believed only in moderation and now you want to go all the way in, and if you look around and you see, oh my God, I'm in a hole, call out. Call out for help and one of us will be by shortly. All right? We'll jump right in that hole with you. Better yet, I'll be sitting right up here after the service if you'd like to come and chat. If you're in a hole, please, I want to jump in that hole with you. I'd be honored to. There is a kingdom and there is a king. So let me close with this. The musicians can come back up. These are lyrics to a song by the Grey Havens. There is a far kingdom, a ways from here, beyond the storm and the sea. There will be no need of darkness and none for tears when that far kingdom I see. There is a far, far kingdom there at the end of the sea where they know my name. And until that far, far kingdom calls me home, oh my soul, I will wait. Or as Isaiah put it, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's stand and let's pray and then let's sing. Oh, Father God, you created us and you've redeemed us. And you call us by name. Let us hear that call. Let us respond to that call. In our precious Messiah's name we pray. Amen.